0: In 1992, I was assigned to the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Mellon, based out of Seattle, Washington. There I ran into machinery technician Scott Warder. We became friends, both of us being engineers, spending most of our time in the underbelly of the ship. While it was underway performing its various missions, we were responsible for making sure that it kept running. We spent a lot of time off the coast of Alaska performing fisheries missions, law enforcement, and of course search and rescue. If any of you have seen that television show, The Deadliest Catch, you've probably seen the Coast Guard being involved in some capacity. We were rescuing people. We were towing broken ships back into port. I remember we launched a Hilo and rescued a woman who was giving birth to a baby on board a fishing vessel. We also towed one of those crabbers back into Dutch Harbor. In the downtime on board the ship, we actually managed to form a band. Not that we had a lot of downtime, but we started making some music together, and it was a great way to pass the time. Very constructive and fun. Scott left the Coast Guard, went off to university at Montana to study film. In 1999, Scott gave me a call, said, Hey, I'm coming down to make a movie about the closing of the Boomerang, which was a club in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. This being pretty notable, he had gotten a grant from his teaching staff to bring a crew down to film this and make a documentary out of it. This episode of Music Life Radio, we talked to Scott Warder about his early experiences with music, how he became a musician, a filmmaker, and the making of Permanent Thunder. Kick back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter, this episode entitled Permanent Thunder.
1: Well, I grew up in Lemmy, Wyoming, in a gem city of the plains. I grew up in a time, born in the late 60s, grew up, you know, before modern technology. The one outlet. That most people had still at that point was music, at least as far as allowed, sort of making noise, being heard type of outlet. I was into music. I was into creating music. You know, I had several friends that were into music, and uh, I don't remember what day of the week, but it was it was unheard of that I was actually allowed to spend the night at a friend's house on a school night. Went out to a town about twelve miles south of Laramie called Ty Siding with um, two guys, Carl Wilson and Sean Tucker and probably until about 4 o'clock in the morning, they both just yelled at me until I could actually hold 4-4 time on a set of drums. <laughs> you know, once I got it, I got it. We started a band, and you know, we just we played music. We played for friends, we played for ourselves, mostly for ourselves, because we weren't good. You know, we thought we were, but you know, we were into, into punk. I mean, punk was, it was loud, it was raucous. You could pretty much make mistakes on a guitar or on the drums, and it still sounded part of the whole event that was punk rock. It was sort of a way to explore the things that most people didn't want to explore. Darker side of society, if you will, darker side of the mind, or maybe it was just being young and obnoxious and wanting to be loud. Yeah, but I always called my brother Tim for different band names, and he would always offer the one to two to four word, names like Razorblade, Buckwheat, Rising Bile, More by Four. I think there was actually a, a real band that went by that name. But, you know, so we were kind of doing the British thing, at least what I perceived as a British thing, was painting your band's name on the back of your Levi jacket. And everybody had to have a Levi jacket. And Yeah, we thought we were pretty cool, but we, we weren't.
0: <laughs> what was the time frame of all this again?
1: Uh, well, it was 85 when I first started... Playing drums, I'd taken a few bass lessons up to that point. Convinced my parents that that's what I needed to do, and so that's what they let me do. And then from bass, I thought that okay, well, guitar was going to be really cool because everybody wants to be a guitarist. You know, my two friends Carl and Sean, they were a guitar player and a bass player, and they needed a drummer. So that's why they hammered drums into me, and that's why I started playing drums.
0: Who were your inspirations as drummers or any kind of musicians around that period?
1: Brian May was always just an amazing guitar player to listen to. What other bands
0: were you listening to at the time that gave you inspiration? Oh,
1: Black Flag, The Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Damned, Minor Threat, The Exploited, 999, The Ramones. It was a time where it was cool to investigate the things that nobody really knew about, the bands that nobody knew. You know, the more obscure, the cooler they were for us. You know, hey, did you get that new Black Flag album? It's like, who's Black Flag? Well, then a couple of years later, everybody knew who Black Flag was and Henry Rollins. And
0: That's a good, solid punk background, I would say.
1: Yeah, I had, I had my missteps along the way with Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and bands like that. But, you know, metal I started with really early because it was, of course, the one thing that would shock everybody else if you're metalhead. You know, I guess there's one individual, the, the the individual that, as a musician, that kind of brought me out of everything was Billy Idol. And then I was told by friends, well, you know, he's not always just been Billy Idol. He was with Generation X. And then I started getting into Generation X. I'm walking in the
2: sea.
0: That's Generation X with Wild Youth.
1: A big part uh, was my brother. My brother, went, to, you know, my brother went away to school. He thankfully never really got bit by the heavy metal bug, and he started sending back music from there, like The Replacements, Naked Ray Gun, and then, of course, Billy Idol, and we just sort of abandoned heavy metal.
0: So you started off with heavy metal and, and moved more into punk? Yeah. Yeah, that's the same for me. I mean, I knew more about metal and really didn't even find punk until college. You know, kind of moved back towards what these people's influences were in some of these harder bands, like Metal Church and stuff like that. And then, you know, you find out that the lead guitar player in Metal Church is, you know, best friends with Kurt Cobain. And then you start figuring out that Kurt Cobain's really inspired by all these obscure punk bands and stuff. Pretty interesting family tree music.
1: I work with a guy who grew up in Aberdeen and used to get his hair cut by uh, Chris Novoselic's mom. Apparently, uh, Cobain played drums at something when this guy was like three years old or something, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, side note.
0: Another side note story. We uh, uh, went and played, uh, this was Visitor 42, I think we were on tour with Eric Core. went down to Al's Bar, and Dale Crover from the Melvins had a side band that he was playing in called Altamont. We were the last band, and we played a cover of a Nirvana song. Floyd the Barber, and he came up to me, and he was you know, pretty good friends with Kurt, and he had this old ratty guitar case. He goes, I, I was just going to throw this out, but uh, I can tell you're a big Nirvana fan. I was wondering if you wanted this. He said that Kurt had given him the guitar and dropped it off on his porch, and that he loved the guitar and was keeping that, and he wasn't going to give that to me, but he th- he thought that, uh, hey, if you want this case, i just got to throw it out anyway. You- you're free to have it. <laughs> so he gave me this really ratty-ass, almost made out of paper i almost say this case and i still have it today but it's it's really completely worthless except for sentimental value and i don't even know if it was really kurt cobain's guitar or not (laughs) well it doesn't matter (laughs) exactly but i but i was like dale gave it to me i don't care i love dale he's awesome (laughs) yeah getting back on track again you I guess in 85 or so, moved on. Uh, what did you do with your life uh, after high school?
1: Well, after high school, I attempted college at the University of Wyoming. Actually, who am I kidding? I really didn't attempt much of anything. I I was enrolled. Didn't do real well. I did go to classes. You know, that's another story, but I continued liking music. But after a bout of uh, being pleasantly asked to leave the University of Wyoming, decided to join the Coast Guard. And spent two years at a small boat unit in Southern Oregon, basically a search and rescue unit, uh, small boats, forty four motor lifeboats, things like that. Uh, after that went to the Mellon, which was stationed in Seattle, and uh continuing with the the music thing I remember you know, I'd always just see bands Southern Oregon bands were just yeah, you know, it's unfortunate because a lot of the bands that I saw in Southern Oregon, Northern California, they were all cover bands, and they just really weren't all that good. So it wasn't very stimulating. Yeah. So I was always, you know, trying to seek out new stuff, and this was really before internet, before computers, anything like that. Um, Napster, iTunes, none of that existed. Eighty nine and ninety, at least not for me. You know, obviously iTunes didn't. Yeah. So it was it was kind of a dark period of music, and I. Drive over from Southern Oregon into uh, Medford, like the larger towns. I was stationed in Brookings, and I was literally searching through what music store owners ideas of alternative music was because that's what they would list it as. It's just alternative. It wasn't even broken down by bands. And I was buying albums based on what the cover of the album was. I had no idea who these guys were, what they sounded like or anything, you know, and as a matter of fact, I bought toe, the wet first album because I thought they had a cool name.
0: I've done that same thing. I mean, th- that's how I found out about naked Ray gun. I bought jettison for 99 cents in the cassette bin. <laughs> and, and you know, like a tower of records or something. <laughs> And I was like, man, this is awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, the spinanes. I mean, like, okay, the spinanes. Who who are the spinanes? I have no idea. But they're 50 cents, and they're in the used bin. Exactly. From
0: my bargain bin collection, Naked Ray Gun, Ghetto Mechanic.
1: Well, I can pick your lines. Put you on the block.
2: down for pie. to pay my fee, you've only got one chance to ride by me. It's always drive, 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 gotta move to survive, that's the law of the ghetto, when to stay and when to go, the wind. I'll be ready to pay my fee. You've only got one chance to run by me. It's me your home. It's me your you. So don't even try to something to make me feel.
1: I went to Seattle for after Oregon. You know, when I hit Seattle in 91, and I think anybody who is, you know, remotely interested in any kind of alternative music knows what was happening in Seattle in the early 90s. And, you know, I even remember my first night, I had not even arrived at the boat, and I was driving to Seattle, and I was trying to find Pier 36, where the ship was located. And I'm flipping around, and I turn on 107.7, and and I I had no idea what the radio station was. I don't even remember what song caught my attention. But then all of a sudden, you know, Nirvana kicks on and I'm like, you know, okay, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to be okay. You know, it smells like team spirit. And, you know, and I knew that that song was at that point getting huge, but I really had no idea just how huge Seattle was going to become over the next couple of years. And I felt very, very fortunate. You know, looking back now, I can say this, how fortunate I was to actually interested in music, that kind of music, that kind of social output, and arriving at the international headquarters for it, and knowing that I was going to be there for at least the next, you know, two years to four years, you know, so that was it. I mean, I I hit Seattle, and there was Nirvana, there was Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Screaming Trees, I mean, all these bands from the Pacific Northwest, they pretty much were the soundtrack of my life. Made a lot of very, very good friends on the ship. And, you know, one, one of them is you, Dan.
0: Yes, that's correct. That's where we met. Those were some good times. I was uh, happy to get stationed on the same cutter that you were. And we went off to many, 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 fun, many shows. fun
1: shows. But then, you know, we we started a band on the ship. And, uh, you know, it was something to do. You you'd get underway for two months. You know, we had first jam. Practice was down in uh, auxiliary down next to the engine room, and then the cold war ended, and they pulled out all the sonar stuff, and so we had a new jam spot where had a bunch of musical equipment and a bunch of uh, life jackets stored down there so we could make as much noise as we wanted to, and we were only affecting the humpback whales and whatever fish happened to be swimming.
0: I know. I feel sorry for them. I remember I had to put in a chit to the XO, who's like the second-in-command on uh, that Coast Guard cutter, to use the room known as Lower Sound as the rock room, and it got approved, and I was pretty happy. And, uh, of course, we moved in promptly after that, and it jammed right next to the soda cans because they were also using it as a soda storage locker, I think. Yeah,
1: and I I remember, actually, one night down there, we were on a Southern Patrol or something, and it was super hot, and I had these red nylon shorts that I was wearing down there because it was so hot, and I perspired so much that the red became pink, and I was just covered in red dye.
0: <laughs> oh, covered in red dye. Not good.
1: Music has always been, as far as I can remember, at least you now when I was thinking for myself. Hopefully I was thinking for myself before my memory of doing so, but you know, I've always liked music, um, and not so much as punk. I mean, now I like punk, but I like all kinds of music. I like Celtic music. I like classical music. Never really got into country and probably never will, but it's all right. Uh, People like it.
0: Reminds me of a little song you did called uh, I'm a Little Redneck.
1: I'm just a little redneck. I got no brains at all. I drive my truck into the town and I have a ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what
0: what draws you to movies?
1: Uh, I just love the aspect of storytelling, any kind of storytelling. I mean, good movies, bad movies, anybody that has any kind of desire to tell a story should do so. You know, from the smallest guy with a home movie camera to multi-million dollar budgets. I mean, it's just telling a story is what we've done for millennia. I'd always taken photographs, and I don't even remember... The first photograph that I took, but I, I had this old Instamatic camera that I don't remember if I got from my father or from my grandparents or, or where it came from. But early on, even in grade school, I started taking pictures. Along with the music while I was in, in the military, I got very much into image and taking pictures. And, you know, after the Coast Guard, I decided that I wanted to make those still pictures move. And uh, from there, I went to Montana and went to film school. Just decided that I wanted to make movies.
0: Four years of study there culminated into a senior project, which you called Permanent Thunder. Can you uh, talk a little bit
1: about that? I should probably start by saying that that wasn't my original senior project idea. My original senior project idea was a claymation. That, you know, I started when I was a junior and was given unprecedented access to equipment and time and worked on this thing for. Probably five, six months building a set, doing all this stuff. And at the end of it, pretty much uh, botched everything. Didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, yeah, I had a, a few weeks worth of pouting. And then I'm not, you know, I honestly don't even remember what exactly happened. But it had something to do with uh, a club in the h district called Boomerang. I don't remember if it was you, Dan, or my brother, Tim, who had talked about the possibility of this club closing. You know, had Umarine closed, it was potentially huge because it was a live music venue in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco that, you know, had to be recorded. It just had to be recorded. A live venue in that area of San Francisco. I mean, the history of of Haight ashbury and everything that has gone on there through the past three decades four decades whatever so i put together a proposal that i've got to go down and record this event to this closing of this bar and and it's at the time of putting this whole thing together i really didn't fully understand the scope of what i was getting myself into as far as what type of, of film i was going to put together you know that that year actually at, at the time there were only two directors that were actually granted uh, full access by the faculty, there were no contradictions to what they wanted to see us do. A lot of other people had to go back and sort of do another draft to get their films accepted by the faculty and allowed to go do them, and mine was one of them. And, you know, whether it was these older filmmakers that were, you know, saw an opportunity to have somebody go down and sort of help them relive their youth in San Francisco and in music, or I don't know, but... You know, or it's possible I just put together a really good proposal. But uh, so I had my crew and we set out to go make this film. And I and I remember that even leading up to doing this film, we still like the morning that we were set to leave weren't a hundred percent sure what what we were going to end up doing. You know, it was a Friday, it was spring break, it was senior year. So this would have been 1999. Uh, there were five of us that loaded up into a Toyota minivan, mid-engine minivan. We packed about 1,400 pounds of lights and camera equipment and luggage and everything into this van. I mean, there were guys literally laying on luggage in the back of this van, and we left at midnight on a Friday night on spring break and drove straight through to San Francisco. Which is actually kind of nice because it's, it can be kind of hot even, even at that time of the year across Nevada. But I remember once on the, on the way out there, one of the guys that was, was with me on the crew, Carl Swingle, uh, we were about 75 miles from, I think, Winnemucca, Nevada or something like that. And he said, Scott, so when the fuel light comes on, how far do we have to go? I said, well, how far is the nearest town? <laughs> and he said, it's about 75 miles. I said, well, I hope we have about 75 miles of gas left. We pulled in on fumes, and then we filled up and kept going. And, you know, going over Donner Pass, of course, there were a number of Donner Pass jokes flying around, and thankfully it wasn't snowing real heavy. so
0: <laughs> Everybody could laugh, huh?
1: Yeah, everybody could laugh. There was, there was no, nothing like that. But then we rolled into San Francisco. Oh, I'm going to guess maybe 6, 7 o'clock at night. None of us really had any sleep. We had been driving all night long. We showed up to a house or it was your house, Dan and I don't remember if that was Alameda or Oakland or wherever.
0: Yeah, it was in Oakland right next to Grand Lake Theater over there on the uh, Grand by the Lake Merritt.
1: Yeah, and it was it was really nice to have a location to show up and you know, my brother and uh sister in law, Lori Come over and dropped off, I think, an inflatable mattress and some food and stuff, and we pretty much came in, washed our hands, maybe had a cup of coffee or a beer or something, and then uh, we went over to Berkeley uh, to a radio station, CalX Live, and did our first interview that night at 8 o'clock with Rick Sylvain who to this day made a comment that I wish would have made it into Permanent Thunder, but it hit the editing room floor. But he was basically talking about punk rock being kind of like a herpes sore. It comes and it goes. You know, just when you think it's gone, it just starts scratching a little bit or itching. And then you start scratching your cheek, and there it is. It's right back in your face again. Kind of a little bit disgusting, but an interesting concept, but... It's,
0: uh, it's a good analogy, it's, you know, the pendulum effect of music, really.
1: It was an interesting night, because we, we got there, and we did the interview, and then we, we we actually started an interview, and then he had a band come in, and I don't even remember what band was there, where uh, he interviewed this band, and we did a longer interview with him, and all of us were just, uh, we were just wiped out. And I think we were all kind of just operating on, on fumes at that point in time, and... That really just sort of started it, because from that, with uh, your help, Dan, and then with the help of Eric Korr and my brother, we just started, I mean, bands just started coming out of the woodwork. Uh, Venus Bleeding, Left Out Lamont, Blue Period. You know, we had no idea really who these bands were, but everybody was very accepting of us and letting us into their lives, and from... An original project of a bar closing in the hate district, it became more of a documentary on, I wouldn't necessarily call it the plight, but basically the the dilemma of bar bands, punk bands, alternative bands, rock bands in the Bay Area. You know what they were up against as far as getting gigs, uh, getting paid for gigs, noise ordinances, zoning laws.
2: Daily clip a monitor, strolling up and down the hall. Left out
0: Lamont with try to hide.
2: He wears a uniform, proudly representing law and order. Boys and girls having fun, racing to get in their next class. A whistle blows and one can freeze as Billy says I busted your ass Vicious as a lion, loose Sneaky as a slither snake Can't deny me Add you to his list of names. Lying doesn't help when you're guilty and you're looking mighty lame. Mr. Toto, principal, shakes his hand and says, Way to go. The committee keeps on giving him honors in a shiny medal. This is
1: that. Yeah, it was just a whirlwind seven days of going anywhere and everywhere and shooting, and Carl Swingle, as I mentioned earlier, he was sort of the second unit director of photography, and he went off with the assistant director a few times, Ben Applin, to get some different footage of 924 Gilman, or get footage of the outside of that, because it was referenced by several bands, and, and we just shot interviews with anybody and everybody we could, and street interviews with uh, some interesting characters. I mean, guys that's at a record stores in Berkeley that's you know, from their eyebrows down to their toes, covered in tattoos, piercings, and then guys you wouldn't even expect that were into into music. Talking about a hardcore bands, you know, hardcore punk to light punk to weird, trippy punk, and then some guys that were obviously just in it for the fashion of it. And by the end of it, we realized that Boomerang was probably not going to close. The original idea of going down and recording the closing of this bar... You know, the bar wasn't gonna close. So it, it turned into I think a much better story about the bands in San Francisco at the time, at least a small section of the bands in San Francisco at the time, and had a really good week and then at the end of that week we most of the bands that were in the film played a show at the boomerang and we recorded that. So What was it like working with a a group of people that
0: intensely for, you know, over a week?
1: I look back on those times and we were all young enough within the industry and young enough within ourselves that we didn't really have the egos that I see developing in certain individuals now. So we all got along very well. We knew that we were there for a project and Kristen Ford, and, you know, she was the editor and she was there. That was her senior project was to edit my film. You know, I had originally just intended to direct it to the individual that I had chosen as a director of photography was the other guy who had his proposal accepted. So it was the decision of the faculty to say, well, you know, Scott, you're a good director of photography. You can shoot it and direct it at the same time, you know, which was good for me. And Carl was an exceptional director of photography, he definitely knew what he was doing, so he was he was a benefit to have. And Ben just understood things. He was he was a fantastic assistant director. And, you know, all these guys came on board as as their senior project as well. And even though I you know held the title of director, and the original idea was kind of mine, but a culmination of friends. It, we all got along. It was it was great. There were stresses. And I remember one moment halfway through the week to where it was just sort of a long, uncomfortable pause with all of us. And uh, it was suggested that I leave, go get some coffee, and just get away from people for a couple hours, which I did. And uh, came back, and, and what I witnessed going on was just magic. You know, we certainly took time while we were shooting B-roll and just scenics and stuff around San Francisco to go to Chinatown. And found this wonderful device that uh, you crack this little vial inside these baggies and then you shake it up and then they would swell and once they would explode you would realize that it was a rotten egg fart bomb and those became like the joke of the whole week that everywhere we went we were throwing fart bombs at people and doing that in a house. It was just... It was fun. That yeah, was the first time I'd ever... Uh, maybe I'd had Ethiopian before that, but uh, you know, we had Ethiopian food when we were there, which Bozeman, Montana, when I went to school in Montana State, they didn't have Ethiopian food, and we discovered this uh, alcohol that was made at an Ethiopian restaurant that you cannot taste alcohol. It tastes like you're drinking orange juice, and man, if you have too much, you should not drive. <laughs> uh, it, the world was in front of us, and... You know, as far as we knew at that point, we owned the world. There was nothing holding us back.
0: We had a good time. I I think I needed to take two or three days off to just rest after that hosting experience because i remember shuttling around with all you guys showing you where to go and how to get to wherever and and trying to coordinate with the bands and of course there was a lot of other people involved sid and your brother i'm sure kurt and the other guys in the bands um and we were able to rally up forces together and and get you guys interviews and and stuff and then we would also stay up pretty late A, a lot of times it was just while you guys were working and stuff but wow it was just it was exhausting
1: it It really was, but it was it was a blast. You know, interesting one little tidbit of information was the night we showed up to do the shoot at the boomerang. Oddly enough, my minivan, there was a parking space five feet in front of the front door of the boomerang that we were able to park at that I could not believe on a Saturday night in the hate district, we found a parking spot right in front of the place we were shooting. It was, it was perfect. It was it was meant to be. You know, and then, of course, we do this long shoot that night. And then Sunday morning, we got up and headed back. And uh, Monday morning, we were all in school again, at least most of us.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: If I remember correctly, we stopped at uh, Border City or Nevada City or something like that, Nevada, for one last go-around slot machines. And I dropped in, I think, about a dollar's worth of nickels and won about 110 bucks off of that and pretty much paid for our gas back nice we came back with 13 hours of footage and we had the task of dropping this down into a 10 minute film because that was a requirement
0: is that that's as long as the permanent thunder was was 10 minutes huh
1: no it actually came in and and i'll get to that i mean it it was longer it's about 12 minutes actually
0: well that's still pretty impressive <laughs>
1: We were not able to get access to any kind of editing, you know, a time frame in the editing base until right towards the end of the semester. And it kind of literally got down to crunch time. And, you know, Kristen did just a fantastic job of weeding through all of this stuff and dealing with my overzealous direction on, you know, this goes in, this doesn't go in. And, you know, she stood firm on a few things, specifically, like, not putting in the Rick Sylvain thing and a few other things. And, And she put together a really... Really nice uh, senior project. You know, the film turned out really well. She did a fantastic job. And, you know, it, it had its obvious flaws. It was minus a lot of bed music, uh, background music, things like that. And it had a few, you know, sections that needed to really be trimmed up. So we turned a 17-minute film in for grade, and thankfully the, the faculty just sort of ignored the fact it was technically seven minutes longer than they would have chosen. And they didn't really rip it apart, but they didn't give it a fantastic grade. I think it was a B-plus or something like that. So we went back to not necessarily the drawing board because the picture was already there, but, you know, we gave it a nice shave and took five minutes off and whittled it down to a 12-minute for senior screenings, which took place at the Museum of the Rockies. They invite who they can invite, uh, whatever celebrities might be in the area or who are willing to come, and, you know, it was actually pretty cool. Peter Fonda came to this one, got to go meet him, and Margot Kidder, uh, was there, she lives in Livingston, Montana, anyway, but, uh, which is where Peter Fond I think, is a ranch just south of Livingston, and then, of course, Visitor 42, my brother had to be there, but you guys all came up, you know, for the screening, and then after the uh, screening, I believe we had a party where I drank pretty much my body weight in beer in front of my grandmother, so... <laughs> That's always good, huh? Yeah, yeah, my grandmother didn't mind. You know, it was interesting, too, because we had some pretty graphic lines in the film, and I I do remember that. And, you know, some of the bands, Blue Period, they're, you know, the fantastic guys, and they just, they have an image that they maintain, and they, and it worked for them at least in 99. I don't know if they're still actually out there doing stuff. Uh, Simon Singer, parts of their shows were things that... Yeah, most of your conservative people wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, run to the theater to go see. But, uh, you know, my grandmother was there, and wonderful woman, and she didn't have a single problem with anything that was in the film. All she could see was this was a senior film that her grandson just made. And any of the other comments that I got that night about strange... Transvestites, transsexual, punk rockers, whatever—just went out the door because my grandmother, but she signed off on it. That's all I needed.
0: That's good. I do. I remember uh, watching the film at the screening and being somewhat shocked myself of the opening scene, which was Simon Stinger yeah. performing a number. Uh, I was like, "Wow, that's a bold move.
1: That's a that's impressive." That's- well, you know, the other thing I remember about senior screenings is there were several films that aired before mine, and they had, uh, you know, foul language, suggestive themes, things like that. They waited until my film to give the big disclaimer that there are things in these films that may offend you, and if you choose to leave the building, that's okay. Exactly. I suppose, that's I suppose fantastic that they chose mine to bring that up in front of.
0: Well, that's when everybody's full attention is now on
1: on the screen, (laughs) right? Exactly. And and you know what? I don't don't believe anybody left. There were a few, there were a few people that were shifting their seats right at the beginning, but yeah, you know, and for me, that's what it's not necessarily what filmmaking is all about, but get their attention. You know, anybody will tell you, you write a paper, you write a story, you write a book. It's the thing that keeps people sitting. And whether it's shocking or romantic or, or anything a hook that will get people to sit there and watch or, quite frankly, get up and leave, then I've done my job. And that's, that's what this film did. That was, you know, not necessarily brutal, but it was certainly a pretty bold move to start the film with, with what Simon Singer is saying. Um, I agree. You know, you can't write that. They did. Yeah, it, it passed my grandmother, so I was happy.
0: Here's a little Simon Stinger to finish off the show with their song, Acid on the Table.
2: It's a it on the farm, people turn and you walk right far. Old spice for everyone, it smells so good when it's broken. High wake the animal, animal, and you walk right far. Flex this here on the farm, that should burns when you walk
0: Scott Warder for his interview via Skype. There'll be more of Scott in an upcoming episode entitled Music Life Radio Goes to the Movies. Thanks for checking us out.